0: So this week, somebody was very nice and kind, and they came in and they put a a bag of of cookies, of Chips Ahoy cookies, on Christie's desk. Aww. Exactly. What's the deal with that? Who is addicted to cookies? I know. Thank you. Yeah. No, no, she brought them in to staff meeting on Friday morning. We, we ate half the box, uh, but then but then I found I found this out. Uh, so my dog likes cookies too, apparently, because. <laughs> Because I bring her, I bring her on Sundays, and she sits in my office and hangs out and attacks people every once in a while. I don't know why. Uh, and I go back in there before for service, and the whole rest of the box is gone. She's out in the back working it off right now, <laughs> or working it out, however that works. Uh, uh, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't oh. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you've got one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app on your smartphone. It's called Uversion. Click on live in Uversion and, and by GPS in your smartphone. If it's really smart, it'll pick us up by GPS. You'll get the sermon notes and the verses and all that go along with that. And I actually did eat a couple cookies a minute ago, so I'm probably going to crash in just a few moments. Be like, let's all go to sleep. This will be a good day. Uh, two things before we start. Number one, daylight savings is next week. This is the evil one. That was thought up by the devil? <laughs> because we lose an hour of sleep. Boo. Yeah, boo, boo. Let's throw him in the pit and get rid of that. Anyway, so uh, set your clocks forward. If not, you'll be... Well, sometimes you'll come in about the same time you normally come in because half of you be late anyway. Uh, but you'll, you'll show up and we'll be leaving at that point. So set, set them an hour forward. I know it's going to feel like you're coming to the earlier service, but you'll be okay You'll be fine. I have faith in you next Saturday, hour forward. Uh, second thing is this. Uh, Easter is at the end of March. It uh, comes really early this year. So Easter's at the end of March, and we're still debating if we're going to do a Saturday night as well as the Sunday morning ones because it, it's packed. I'll let you know as we get closer about that. But we're gonna do, we do a good Friday service, which is the Friday before Easter. Uh, Good Friday services are typically for believers, and so if you have friends that you want to invite to bring to something, don't invite them to Good Friday service, all right? Uh, And Good Friday service this year, we're doing something different because we always have a plan behind what we do. Good Friday service is going to be at 11 p.m., on Friday, so that might weed some of you out as it is, because if I, we cannot stick all three services in the same room together, even if you guys are standing like this, so hopefully that weeds some of you out too. But good Friday, uh, 11 p.m. You'll get close, more about it as we get closer to that as well. Once you on with me You're reading God's Word, I like your blue shoes, by the way. They're cool. Uh, Psalm 102, verses 18 to 20, it says this, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as your people would be those who understand that you are a God who weeps with us and mourns with us and rejoices with us. And that we would walk into all of life understanding that everything has been sifted through your good hands. And that we would trust you for all things and that in that we would live lives that would fully honor and reflect you. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So this is Genesis week 57. If you are new, you've only missed a little over a year. Way to go. Uh, but fear not. If, if you want to hear all the past messages, you can go online, ourelement.org. Uh, you can download them all. You can get our podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can be up to date by next week, if you really are so inclined. If you have a commute... That you could listen to all those by next week. We feel really sorry for you, by the way, because terrible commute, all right? Uh, now, today we're gonna end someplace that you may not actually see coming, or you may, depending on where you're at. I- again, I do wanna give you more credit, like I said last week in the standard TV show. So, last week, yay! <laughs> Just are ready for the amens already. We're just, we're just going. So uh, last week we started with this guy named Joseph. Uh, Joseph becomes the dominant figure throughout most of the rest of the book of Genesis. And at the point you meet Gen- uh, meet Joseph, he is a cocky 17-year-old kid. He thinks he's good-looking and thinks he's cool, which he probably is because the Bible tells you he's like the, the most good-looking dude ever in the Scripture. So he's probably good-looking. So he thinks everybody has what he wants, that the world all revolves around him. Uh, he is his dad's favorite he's probably never been spanked he's probably never been grounded probably never been told no like a lot of kids today Uh, his dad even gave him a coat that said he was better than all of his brothers and it again just keeps going on to say that he was his dad's favorite in the middle of all this God gives Joseph some dreams and these dreams indicate that everybody in the world is going to kind of come and bow down to Joseph Joseph likes that idea so he tells everybody else about it which is not always the greatest idea in the world because nobody takes that information well Uh, Now, I've told you this before, that that God's plan for people is humility. And when we don't live in humility, God will bring about his plan B, which is humiliation. And so when we have pride, we are fighting God for his glory. Uh, Joseph does not live in humility to begin with, and so God brings about humiliation. Because in the end, you have to understand the story is God's story. All right? It is not necessarily so much about Joseph, it's about what God is going to do in the coming person of Jesus Christ. So the story is about Jesus. And what you see is that God throughout Joseph 's life is going to extend grace to him, but by extending grace to Joseph, what God does is he tears Joseph 's life apart, turns it upside down. So if your Bible open to Genesis 37, at this point, today you're going to see Joseph's brothers, they want to kill him. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, for, for Joseph, he's really done nothing at this point that, that warrants being murdered. You know, he's, he's just, again, a cocky kid. It's not a call to kill him, but that's about what his brothers do. They just... Kill him. Uh, Genesis 37, verse 12, which is where he left off last week. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Now Shechem is about 50 to 60 miles from where the family is now living. So they're a family that has, you know, th- these sheep and goats, and you got to take care of them. So take them where the grass is. This is for you. It would be like if you had some animals and you were pasturing them in Paso Robles and you live in Santa Maria, it's kind of a far way to go. Uh, Again, uh, what happened in Shechem a few weeks ago, uh, the two sons went and they almost killed everybody in the region, so it's probably... A hostile place. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, Here I am. Throughout the scriptures, this here I am. It's like, I'm here to do your bidding. I'm ready for you. What, do you. what do you need of me? You'll see people say this to God all the time. Here I am. Now, what you need to notice, though, is where are all the brothers? They're out working. I'll give that one to you, okay? Out working. So where's Joseph? At home. Right? So, so what's he doing? Lounging around, wearing his special coat, eating cookies, playing Xbox. He doing, he doing doing something. He was special. He got to stay home. Verse 14. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. This is literally in Hebrew, report back to me. It's like, Joseph, here's your clipboard and I want you to put on your coat, go check on those losers out there, come back and tell me what they're doing so I can yell at them some more. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. So Joseph does, puts on his special coat, grabs his uh, clipboard, treks out to the wilderness to find his brothers to tattle on them. And this is very sad because Joseph, instead of making his kids a team, he's drawing a wedge in the middle of them. And if you're a parent and you have kids, you need to teach your kids to be a team. If you, have, if you have daughters, you know, sisters should become a team. Brothers should be a team. Brothers and sisters, a team working together. You've got to find a way to help them stick together and not drive a wedge between them. Verse 15, And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. My dad said, Go find your brothers. They're not here where they're supposed to be. Well, that's a check mark right there. I can yell yell up for that. Sweet. Verse 17. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Dothan's another sixteen to twenty miles from where they're at. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. A lot of people say, Who is this guy? Right, That shows up and just tells Joseph where they went. Well, once in the scriptures, it calls him a man. Two times after that, it calls him the man. Some people think it's Jesus showing up. I don't know. could have been. It doesn't really matter. It's just somebody that God put there to make sure Joseph gets where he needs to go to start this whole humbling process. Verse 18. They, that's the brothers, saw him from afar. Before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. It's like, look, there's Joseph. I got a plan. Death. That's, that's, I fought with my brother growing up lots of times. Death was never the outcome that I wanted. Maybe twice. Okay, maybe twice. But not all the time. This is 11 on 1. And honestly, if there's a kid who deserves a beating, it's Joseph at this point. Okay, I fully agree. I'm good, I'm good with that. But not death. And it's interesting that death in Genesis was first done between two brothers. You see all these problems of Jacob running from his brother Esau because Esau wanted to kill him. And it seems like people just aren't learning from their mistakes. Verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. They won't even call him my name. They just mock his dreams. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. It says, but when Reuben heard of it, now Reuben is the kid who slept with his stepmom, so he's an awfully weird kid just to begin with, and so he gives up his right as the firstborn child, so nobody really listens to him that well. It says, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Now, this could be a ploy to get back into the good graces of his father again, because you know, all this stuff, sorry about the whole mom thing dad uh i saved your kid will you like me will you like me again you know i i don't know maybe maybe some of you grew up like you had brothers who would like duct tape you throw you in a closet kick you every once in a while boom shut the door five minutes later Boom! Shut the door. Your dad shows up. What are you doing? I, I, I wasn't going to kill him. All right? You read this. That, that was me. I, I was the young one, right? I always got stuff done to me. Well, I was Henry too. But, you know, the, you hear this and you start to twitch because it's like, that's my life growing up. Oh my goodness. It's in the Bible. What, what's going on? My brother's friends used to like to beat me up and pick on me. But again, I usually started it. I told you about my brother's friend Paul. You know, Paul always liked to beat me up. So one day I said, Paul, if your hand's bigger than your face, you're going to get cancer. And he's all, BAM! That's the rope-a-dope stuff. Woo! Bam! Chases me down, beats me up. I mean, listen, brothers are evil. Brothers, they're malicious. They come in two flavors, wicked and really wicked. Okay, that, that, that's brothers. I mean, brothers will sit and hide in a closet for hours just to wait for their other brother to get home. So when they open the closet door, you go, Wah! And they'll pee themselves. It's like, what, what's on your agenda today? Make my brother pee his pants. That's all I got to do. That's all I got. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. Like, first thing, I'm going to get rid of that robe. No more robe. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it, so it's a well of some sort. I imagine him going in, landing on his head. That's just how I see it. Uh, then they sat down to eat. Not a lot of conscience in that. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, this is the other side of the family, uh, their grandfather's brother, the crazy side. You don't really talk about too much. With their camels bearing gum, like Juicy Fruit and Bubblicious and Stride bad Bible humor, I'm sorry, Uh, bomb and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, and, and Judah now has the right of the firstborn at this point. He's pretty weird too, which you will see next week as we talk through it. And I guarantee you, if you have never been offended at element, I will offend you next week as we talk about Judah and his kids. It says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Now, Uh, this is how you know they weren't really listening to Reuben because they were still going to kill him. But now they see this and and Judah says, hey, you know, let's not kill him because we can make some money off of him. He says, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listen to him. So if they don't get a conscience, they're going to get a profit, which is great. Verse 28, Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Slaves at this time would range between 15 and 30 shekels, so they really didn't bargain that hard for a good-looking kid like Joseph. They took Joseph to Egypt. Verse 29, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I where shall I go? So he sold without Reuben knowing. All of his plans of getting back into his dad's good graces are now shot. It says, Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And throughout Genesis, this is the kind of thing when people sin, they try and cover it up. And so here they're trying to cover it up with this blood on the robe. Oh, hey, your, your son's gone. We didn't have anything to do with it. And an animal did this. Adam and Eve do this by, by leaves and hiding behind trees. We do it when we put lie after lie after lie trying to cover it, what we've done. Sin just leads to other sins and not good things. And so you can repent. Or, and, and come clean, or you can continue to lie. These brothers continue to lie. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Now, I am sure I gave my mom moments like this growing up. I was always getting lost, falling in the ocean when we were at the beach. Uh, I used to like to play on the roof in, in the chimney because I always thought... How does that, I'm tiny, and how does that dude get down this thing? And so she literally caught me one time, and I'm like ready to just jump off, go down it, and she she caught me like right then. Yeah, anyway. So I, well, I think, think, you know, Jacob's son is now gone. And I think one, it's, it's got to be one of the worst things for a parent if you've ever experienced this. I mean, just, just to bury your child. But Jacob doesn't even get to be able to bury his child. There's no body. Verse 34, Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. How many? All. You know how many, what all means in the scriptures? All. All. They all knew though Joseph wasn't dead. That's pretty sick. They're all, they all knew the lie. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol, that's the grave, to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And most of this man's future is destroyed because of this lie. When the truth would have been so much better, probably a lot harder, would have been a lot of arguments in the middle of this, you know. but it would have been so much better. But jo- Jacob would have learned, I need to stop showing favoritives. And the brothers would be like, we're knuckleheads, we've got to quit lying. And it would have been so much better on the backside simply telling the truth. But nobody does. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Okay, so here's my questions for you in this. Have, have the boys sinned against Joseph and their father? Say it out loud. Yes. Thank you. You guys are crazy. Okay, so, so in that, did God make them sin? No. Some of you seem like you weren't too sure about that. No, God didn't make them sin. Did God tell them to sin? No, he didn't tell them to sin. They chose freely to destroy their brother and their father's lives. And even though God didn't make them do this, he is still going to use this to bring about his good. This is what we talked about last week in the whole issue of providence. God brings about his good. But I want you to see what we're going to spend time with this morning is Jacob's reaction, this feeling of hopelessness and loss. So in your Bibles, open to Romans chapter 5. We're going to spend some time in Romans. Romans this whole moment of mourning and sadness, and what do you do when everything around you tells you to give up in your life? You know, what might God be up to with things that you don't understand? And there is a word that I want to point out to you from the Apostle Paul that kind of deals with this in the middle of it. We're going to walk through this whole thing, and maybe the book of Romans might make a whole lot more sense to you after we finish. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 starts like this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, which is a really odd phrase, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. This is the word disappoint. Hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has poured into our hearts the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I pointed out to you on many occasions going through the book of Genesis that many times suffering can actually produce growth in our character. In the ancient world, this was widely embraced. People actually believed this. You know, people in Greece and Rome and these thinkers would write out what were called hardship lists. In the New Testament, you see Paul do this as well. He talks about being uh, shipwrecked and stoned and beaten. These are like a hardship list all these really difficult experiences, and they would write these things down that they had been through and then talk about how through these things they could become a wiser person, a stronger person, a better person. But Paul, in his letter to the Romans, adds a word in this passage that the Greek and Roman writers would never think to have added. And it's a word that changes everything. It can change us too, but I'm going to make you wait for it for just a moment because I want to point a couple things out to you. Number one is this. Hardship has a way of revealing and making evident our character. Hardship has a way of revealing and making evident our character. Throughout the scriptures, you will see people respond to hardship and trials in different ways. The writer of Proverbs in 24 verse 10 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. The NIV gives you the thought behind it and says, If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? So part of what hardship does is it actually tests our character. Now, hardship doesn't have to be as dramatic as losing a child like Jacob. Everybody has a hardship list going every single day, and God is at work in the midst of that. In Proverbs 17.3, it says, The crucible is for silver. So that's where cru- that silver is tested in that crucible. And the furnace is for gold. So the fire is where gold is tested. It says, And the Lord tests the heart. See, God is interested in our hearts, and many times that's hotter than the crucible or the furnace. And so there is a way in, in which much of life, every single day, is kind of this testing for is this crucible of where we're at. And the questions become, you know, how are we going to respond to, to simple things, even simple things like an interruption, or maybe you don't get what you want, or you have a health problem, or, or maybe somebody gets in, in your way, or, you, or you're disappointed about something else, or you get criticized, or you simply maybe have to wait a little bit longer for something than you want to. Anybody here ever get impatient? Yeah. I mean, how do you respond to that? I mean, sometimes I think I'm doing... So, I, patience is a huge issue for me. I don't have a, I'm really ADD. I don't have a lot of patience. And, and I, sometimes I think, man, I'm doing so much better on my patience right now. And then I drive on the freeway. <laughs> and I realize, you know, I just, I just go crazy. I was talking with this guy recently about an important decision that's coming up in his life. And one path is going to be really hard and one path is going to be a little bit easier and so he's trying to figure out what to do and so i asked him i said well what path is going to make you grow more doesn't miss a beat and he says you know the harder path is going to make me grow more and i said why and this is this is this is my paraphrase of what he said he says haven't you noticed great comfort rarely brings great growth and it's true And it's true. Now, trouble by itself doesn't produce growth. Trouble can just produce bitterness. But if we can trust God in the midst of it, if we can live with poise and confidence and joy in Jesus and not get focused on ourselves, then it can bring great growth. Secondly, desperate hardship reveals the truth about the human condition. About the human condition. Uh, Dallas Willard likes to say a lot, God's address is at the end of your rope. It's also at a lot of other places. It's not just there. But, you know, you have a rope metaphorically, and, and it has an end. And if you haven't gotten there one day, you probably will get there, okay, and, and God's there. But it's not the only place that he is. And what our culture does is it tries to just bombard us with messages of self-sufficiency. You can take care of yourself. Do it on your own. Christianity, God's a crutch. You, you, don't, you don't need that. And what if all those props we have are actually just illusion? Because when trouble comes with illness and loss or bankruptcy, divorce, all these fears, when you're at the end of your rope and you do have a rope, this whole illusion of self-sufficiency gets shattered. And thirdly, if deliverance is all that we require or desire from God, then when our troubles disappears, our desire for God is going to disappear as well. You see, this is one of the most common themes that you'll actually see throughout the Scriptures. In times of suffering, people's minds and hearts turn to God. Oh, God, help me. Oh, God, save me. Oh, God, deliver me. But as soon as the pain and the trial goes away, their hearts start turning away. Same thing for us. In, in heart, oh, God, where are you? And then all of a sudden things get better. We pray less often. We pray with less urgency. Which always brings you back to these strange words of the Apostle Paul in the church at Rome. Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's something amazing going on in the midst of that. David Fredrickson points out that in the Greco-Roman world that these thinkers would often make the connection between suffering and growth of character. They might actually write exactly the words that Paul wrote, exactly, except for one word, and that word is the word hope. Hope would be a total head scratcher to them. They believe that the, the world's a cold heart, it's in a personal place, and so you have to, uh, you have this glory of the individual in all of your strength, just like our culture teaches you today, and you're supposed to use your reason, which they loved, to use your own self-sufficiency to rise above all the sufferings and have a disciplined mind and a disciplined life, and you refuse to allow any circumstance to disturb your serenity, or your tranquility, or your inner peace. So they would say suffering leads to perseverance and perseverance leads to character well well yes of of course it does but character leads to hope well no that, that's not what happens none of them actually recommended hope and if i can make this clear they said if you had hoped if you had hope you were giving up control of your life to something else hope was a sign of weakness there are lots of these writers who would call hope a moral disease Because they believe that you should be a strong person, that it should be your self-sufficiency, and you should not have to trust a power beyond yourself. You should be captain of your ship and master of your own fate. Nothing else should be. And if you have hope, you're giving all of that up. Again, this is why people call Christianity. Oh, Christianity is a crutch. Christianity is not a crutch. Christianity is the wheelchair. Okay? It's like that little cart at Walmart that people ride around and you know, that's what seriously, if it's just a crutch, you don't understand Christianity. I mean, it is, this is Paul is invites people to a different world. In the ancient world, just like ours, suffering becomes easier if you have someone who could come alongside you and help suffer with you. They would enter, enter it with you. Aristotle said, suffering is lightened by the sympathy of a friend. And so sometimes someone might be willing to step into your life and suffer with you a little bit. They might even be willing to die for a friend. They thought this was noble. Cicero would write how in Rome they would have these plays, and sometimes in these plays there was a scene where someone would die for somebody else, and they'd have standing ovations. People would be like, oh, that's amazing. A friend sacrifices for a friend. But there were always limits to that. And it all goes back to the backdrop of Romans and what's going on. And so one limit in this is the person that somebody died for had to be a person of high virtue, someone who was totally worthy of it, worthy of the sacrifice that you're about to make. It's not a virtue to suffer and die for an unvirtuous person. And another limit was if you entered into somebody's suffering and you, and you went alongside of them, you're not allowed that suffering to interfere with your tranquility and your inner peace. They, must have, they would have really liked Star Trek, right, and, and Vulcan and, and Spock. And It's a bad Star Trek joke, but it's true. All right. And they had a word for that kind of suffering, what, what this looked like, the suffering that, that if you were so weak it would, it would come in and take away your tranquility. They had a word for that. And this word that they used was the word groaning, groaning. Groaning was the word they used for someone who was so weak in character that he allowed circumstances to disturb him. And this is why when you read the scriptures, the scriptures are completely unique. Because as you read through the scriptures, you see God's people groan all the time. And this is not what people would do when they look at the heroes of their faith. They wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, well, no, they were perfect. They never groaned. And you, all throughout the scriptures, you constantly see God's people groaning. And groaning is what weak people do. Groaning is what people do when they cannot bear what has happened, when they just can't stand the disappointment, like when Jacob loses his son. Let me give you a picture of it, okay? You ever see, like, a Super Bowl or a playoff game? And, and it's like five, four seconds left, and, and, and your team you love is down by two or one points, and they set up for a field goal. And it's like 40 yards, which isn't that bad, but it's still kind of far. But, you know, this kicker's pretty good. He can make it. And so all of a sudden, you know, they get up, and they kick, and it's like, and it's going. Woo, and the wind catches it. It just goes oh, barely wide, right? What does everybody do in the stadium? <sighs> exactly, exactly. And that's, that's the ground, that's what your spirit does deep inside you. just, ah, oh, ah. Oh. That's, that's what you do. When you're disappointed, your spirit just goes, ah. Oh. You know, maybe you lose out on a job that you really, really wanted, and you go, ah. Oh. You know, maybe you go into work and they're downsizing, maybe sequestration hits you or something, and you know you end up and you lose your job, and all of a sudden you walk in and you just go, Oh, I can't believe that. Maybe you're single and you really want to ask somebody out on a date and they're cute and you ask them and they say, No, sign the door in your face, and you go, Oh. You know, I tell you you're gonna lose an hour of sleep next week, and you all go, oh. <laughs> I tell you, hey, I've got like twenty minutes left of this message, and you go, oh, no, you don't you go, oh that's so good, God's excellent. Way God <laughs> It's it's like Jacob, okay? When the son you love is said to be dead and you're handed a bloody robe and not even a body, and you're holding you just go, oh. See, the ancients believed mastery of your spirit is what counted. Nobody wanted to be groaners. They they wanted to be masters of their life. And they had a word for this as well. And this is all, again, the backdrop to what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. Someone who has mastered their spirit, someone who has done all these things and and lived in tranquility, they were were called a conqueror. You're a conqueror. That's what a conqueror is. Someone who has mastered their spirit through self-sufficient reason and self-sufficient will, in a world that's going to hell. Seneca once wrote this, When will it be our privilege to utter the words, I have conquered? Do you ask me whom I have conquered? Not external enemies, but greed, ambition, fear of death, all these things that could disturb me etern- internally, that has conquered the conquerors. Again, a conqueror is someone who is so self-sufficient, so self-reliant, that no circumstance can disturb you anymore. Then you are a conqueror. Now leave your, your finger in Romans chapter 5 and flip to Romans chapter 8. Now, the watchword in the ancient world in this is no groaners allowed. Okay, no one's allowed to groan. Epictetus wrote this, no good man ever groans. Plutarch wrote, groaning is a sign of weakness. Cicero wrote, it is a disgrace to groan, all except for the writers of Scripture. Romans 8.22, Paul writes this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That is why Paul uses that word. Creation is groaning. It is overcome by sorrow and grief, creation itself. Now, in ancient literature, a writer would sometimes portray nature as being able to empathize or sympathize with what's going on in human suffering. You see this in movies today sometimes. Anybody ever seen the movie Bambi? Right? Okay, maybe you're waiting to have a kid. You'll watch it with your kid, uh, and I don't want to ruin it for you. But what happens to Bambi's mom? She gets shot and she dies. All right, that's what happens to Bambi's mom. Sorry. Okay. Now, if you if you've ever seen Bambi, what happens when Bambi's mom gets shot and dies? Anybody know? It starts to rain. It starts to rain. And it's like the earth itself is weeping for all of this pain that's beginning to happen. That's, there's a wording for this. They call this the pathetic fallacy, that actually nature can come in and empathize and enter into human suffering. And so Paul says there's a reason why this keeps coming up in our day, and it keeps coming up in our minds, that this whole idea of the pathetic fallacy, that creation itself, Romans 8.21, is waiting to be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I mean, think about creation. It brings us a lot of joy the way that it is. Like, we had a couple really nice days. And today's supposed to be a nice, a little colder, but still supposed to be a nice day. You go to the beach. you, you got whales and sharks and fishes. And it's, all, it's all kind of, starfish, you throw them. You know, it, it's, it's all kind of cool, right? And yet we're still told that it's in bondage to decay. What's it going to look like when it's set free? You know, set free from this bondage to decay, I mean, I think we all want to see that. But in the meantime, the world is said to groan. God's creation groans. And not only that, Paul says, Romans 8.23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. So Paul says, we are all groaners, as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul says, I'm a groaner, and he's not ashamed of it. He groans openly. He says, creation groans, the church groans, human being groans. And not only that, in our suffering, the Spirit of God intercedes for us. You know what the Scripture says he intercedes with? Groans. 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 Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray, as we ought No, sorry. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This is the idea that God groans. Nobody in the ancient world would talk about a God who groaned. God doesn't groan. This is how you know that God is not a God we made up. God is a God who has revealed himself. God groans. Jesus groans over our sin. We have a God who suffers with us. We have a God who is on the cross, a God who is at the end of your rope, so to speak. And because we have a groaning God, we have hope. Now, leave your finger at Romans 8, back to Romans 5, 3 again. This is the idea of suffering, produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And again, this whole idea is a head-scratcher for the people then, but not Paul, not the writers of Scripture. Why does character produce hope? You got to remember what we saw a moment ago in the ancient world people would sometimes sympathize for their friends or enter into that kind of suffering with their friend but, you, but when you suffer for them you couldn't actually let it affect you and you would only suffer for somebody who was virtuous. You only suffer for someone who has shown themselves to be worthy who deserves it who is righteous. So keep that in mind. Romans 5 starting verse 3 again. Not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put is to shame why not because we're such great hopers no because god's love has been poured into our hearts through the holy spirit who has been given to us well how does that happen for while we were still weak at the right time christ died for the ungodly and he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So he, you know, he quotes these, these kind of plays that people like in the ancient world. Yeah, yeah, people would do that. For a good person, I might be willing to go in and do something like that. It doesn't happen often, but it could happen. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, unworthy, undeserving, a total mess. What he just said a second ago, they were weak. The God in human flesh, the best man who ever lived, Jesus Christ died for us. Now, why does hope not disappoint us? You know, why? It's not because of my strength or your strength. It's not because things are turning out the way we want them to in this life. It's not because we've got it all figured out. We've conquered all of our emotions through a supremely powerful, self-sufficient reason that we possess. It does, hope doesn't disappoint because Jesus, as an act of complete grace for a people as sin-soaked and sin-damaged and sin-stained as you and me and Jacob and Joseph chose to give his life and suffer and grow and die on a cross for people like us. And, guys, I tell you, if, if we would ever really get that, I swear we'd stand up and cheer like we haven't cheered for anything else in our lives. But I understand that, that you know, you're, you're Santa Maria, you're a little conserved, so I swear, you know, if we ever really understood that, maybe I could at least get an amen. amen. Yeah. Except for the five on this side of the room. How about the rest of you? See, this is the thing. It's the good news. This is why hope doesn't disappoint. So when you look at the groan of Jacob thinking, oh, look, he's lost his son, or or Joseph thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. Their hope was never useless or in vain. Whatever your hardship list is, whatever you go through, and you have one, it will probably grow as long as you live this life. You've been invited by God through faith into an infinitely greater adventure you have been invited to something unspeakably more noble and more heroic and more significant than just trying to attain your own personal serenity. Because the attainment of personal serenity is not the reason why you and I are walking on this groaning planet. The ancient said a conqueror is one who maintained you know, his tranquility in the face of an impersonal world that was just broken all the time. That's a conqueror. Oh, I've learned not to let the world get to me. Open your Bibles back open to Romans chapter 8. You should be able to flip just right there. Romans eight thirty seven. This is what Paul tells you. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, we like to throw this around and say, oh, well, that's just a really pretty phrase. Oh, we're more than conquerors. No, there's a whole backdrop to what this actually meant. And and people are always taking these things out of context. Oh, oh, the spirit groans. Oh, oh, that's what. No, no. it, It groans for a reason. You are more than conquerors, more than conquerors. You know, again, a conqueror is somebody I, I've conquered. Oh, it's my self-sufficient reason. I, I've done all of this. You know, how do I get past all my problems? Well, well, I take care of them myself. That's what a conqueror is. And then Paul says to you and I, no, no, we are more than conquerors. And would you, in your life, want to be more than a conqueror? Do you want to live your life that way? Because it's not that your strength or my strength or a willpower that happens. It's through him. This is what Paul goes on. He says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he gives you a hardship list. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. That's a huge hardship list. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that is why hope does not disappoint. That is why hope dis- doesn't disappoint. And at Element, this is what we are about. We want everybody to walk out of here knowing and living and understanding that you are more than conquerors. So this morning, what we are going to do is there are going to be some deacons and elders in the back of the room. And if you, in your life, have never surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ, you have the opportunity this morning. We're not going to, it's not going to be a Billy Graham crusade. We're not going to sing ten verses of Just As I Am. We're not going to make you come down and kneel at the front. We're going to give you a place where you can go back and talk to the guys in the back. And they can introduce you to Jesus Christ. And you can begin to live your life, not just as a conqueror, as our culture tells you to, but you can be more than a conqueror. You can be what God intended for you to actually be and live the life he intended for you to actually live. You can understand that groaning is for a purpose. And God loves to take you through that groan, out the other side, and make you more than a conqueror. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys uh, to go and pray. If you need that, we invite you guys to communion. Communion is the place where you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It represents the blood, that was, Christ's blood that was shed for you and I. So we can live a life as more than conquerors. There's offering boxes on the side on the back we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So you have the opportunity every week. And there's food and stuff in the back. And maybe, hopefully, you can meet somebody, go out to lunch, something. And maybe talk about this. What does it mean to actually be more than a conqueror? Because, you know, in our world today, you're told, you know, you need to be a conqueror to take care of your whole life. Well, no, we don't need to be a conqueror. We need to be more, more. And only by realizing that you can't conquer anything, you actually become more than a conqueror only when our lives are submitted to the will of god do we live as more than conquerors and so that is your invitation today to know jesus christ surrender to him and live as more than a conqueror you guys pray with me part of this morning i ask that we as a people would understand what it means to be a people fully surrendered to you and your will I ask that we would realize it's okay for us in times of hardship and pain to groan, to cry out. And that we'd understand that you as our great God groan with us. That it is not an embarrassment for you. It is a way to more and more display your hope to your people. And I ask more than anything this morning, God, you would have us understand that we are more than conquerors when we give up all of our own self-sufficient reason and all of our ways of trying to do everything simply on our own and lay ourselves at the foot of you and your grace. Then we rise and live as more than conquerors, knowing that nothing in this world, height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, can separate us from you and your great love for us. And we can live in great confidence, honoring you with the life that has been given to us by a gracious gift of your hand. And that we, when in turn, love you with at least a glimmer of the intensity that you love us. And that the world would begin to change because of how your children have become more than conquerors. Teach us and guide us to live in love as you do. And most importantly, have us all surrender our lives at the foot of your cross. Understanding the glory of your grace and that you as our God has sought us and bought us and brought us home. Have us live in the truth of who you are. Amen.